Amen. Just bask in those verses for a few moments. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have a hope that doesn't disappoint, a hope that does not fade away. Whereas verse 32 said there, forgiven because Christ has forgiven us. And just consider what a great hope that we have in Christ as, as we sang those songs. Just such a reminder that the pleasures of the world do not satisfy. The, the things that we might find pleasure in in this life are fleeting and passing. But it's our relationship to the Almighty God that will stand and remain forever. And it's his word, he says, that endures forever. It is our instruction. It is our guide. It is a rock to us. It it teaches and instructs and builds up. It admonishes. It exhorts. It rebukes. And it reproves. Yet it is such such a source of encouragement in difficult times. And so let's turn our attention now to God's Word. We're going to look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in a few moments, we'll come to verses 12 through 15. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. And we're going to look at this under the topic of pursuing Christ together. Uh, we reached the end of Galatians chapter 1 a couple weeks ago. And the, the nature of the book of Galatians is kind of repetitive. Paul spends the first four chapters kind of churning over this idea of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. So with that, I thought it would be good and beneficial to take a week on occasion to kind of step out from Galatians and look elsewhere in Scripture. And in the Lord's providence, Pastor Steve came last week and spoke of the idea of discipleship. And today, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 5, we're really going to flesh that out a little bit as far as the relational aspect within the church of how do we pursue Christ together? How do we strive after Christ's likeness together? It is no coincidence in the sovereignty of God on our Wednesday nights, the last several weeks, we have looked at the relational aspects of church membership. We've looked at the idea of church discipline. And then we've also looked at the offices of the church. And this passage in 1 Thessalonians kind of ties all of that together. The, the relationships between the leadership of the church and the people of the church, but more importantly, the relationship of all of us. All of us as those who are, are those who make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've turned there, let's read together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes here, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish 
the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come now to sit under the authority of your holy word, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in great and amazing power among us. Lord, if we've gathered in our own strength, we've certainly gathered in vain, and the purposes that you desire to accomplish will not be accomplished if we seek to do these things on our own power and in our own strength. So I pray, Lord, that, that you would um, teach us, that you would exhort us, that you would encourage us, rebuke us. Lord, break us over sin. Bring us to repentance. Lord, through your word, may we see Christ more clearly. May we see our need for Christ more clearly. May we see the importance of relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ to be more and more important and necessary. Lord, would you teach us? Would you glorify yourself to and through us today? Lord, help us to put away all distractions. Help us to focus on that which is good and true, and pure, and honorable, and upright, and worthy. Lord, be glorified among us today, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So pursuing Christ together, pursuing Christ together, as we come to this letter of 1 Thessalonians, this is one of the earlier letters that Paul wrote that was recorded in Holy Scripture. It was likely written shortly after the book of Galatians. We know from Luke's account in Acts chapter 17 that it was on that missionary journey in Acts 17 when Paul and Silas were were ministering in Thessalonica and they found great success there preaching the gospel. Acts 17 4 says that some of the Jews there were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, and a number of the leading women. So they were having great success ministering the gospel. But of course, it was at that point, as we've seen through Galatians, that the Judaizers, who were stalking Paul as he went about preaching the gospel, they came in to the town, they gathered up a mob, they ran Paul and Silas out of town, and so Paul moved on. As was Paul's custom then, when, when he could not make it back to this town to minister to these people, he picks up pen and paper, and starts to write, maybe not pen and paper, but you get the idea. He, he writes to them, and what's so unique about the letter to the Thessalonians is it is so encouraging. It is a letter of commendation. So often, Paul's letters contain strong rebukes. Um, they contain great corrections. But this letter to the Thessalonians is really just encouraging. It has an encouraging tone to it. It does not have the corrective tone that is so prevalent through Paul's biblical writings. 
So what we must know then is that these Thessalonians, based on Paul's letters, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, these people must have been walking with the Lord. They were pursuing godliness. They upheld the truth. There was no great theological danger that Paul had to address with them. But rather, he wrote to them to tell them to press on, to keep on, to be encouraged, to abound more and more in your love for one another and your service to Christ. He began his letter by thanking the Thessalonians for their obedience to the Lord and their faith. He, he said, I thank God for your obedience and your faith. He responded to some of the allegations, of course, those those typical allegations that followed Paul everywhere he went because of those Judaizers who hated him. In chapter 3, he expressed his great joy and his great love for these dear saints. In chapter 4, he encourages them to continue walking in godly and moral living. He encourages them to pursue a deeper love for one another. And then in kind of a a uh, kind of strange turn of, of subjects, the last half of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, he deals with the topic of eschatology. He, he deals with it as such because he wants the people to encourage one another with the doctrines that he lays forth. And then finally, we arrive at the end of chapter 5, this last section, verses 12 through 22, where Paul essentially lays forth the idea of three different relationships, how these relationships are to work together, the relationships between the leadership and the membership of the church, the relationship of all the members of the church, our relationship to one another, and then thirdly, our relationship to the Lord. That final relationship takes up verses 16 through 22, and we will not have time to look at that today, but we'll focus on these these two human relationships, verses 12 through 15. These relationships that are broken apart into these two categories, the leaders of the church and the church, the, the sheep relating to the shepherds, and then the sheep relating to the sheep. And just as a kind of footnote to that, be crystal clear in saying this, that, that the leaders of the church are to be treated just as a member of the church, for no church leader is above accountability. In fact, I think Scripture would make it very clear that holding an office in the church does not free a man from accountability, but only increases that accountability. Accountability both to God and accountability to those who make up the church. So firstly then, verses 12 and 13, let's look at this idea of the sheep relating to the shepherds. Again, Paul says there, but we request of you, brethren that you appreciate those who labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now live in peace with one another. So right off the bat, if Paul sees the need to encourage this peaceful living between the church and the church's leaders, we must know that Paul had some level of concern. He had some level of concern that there could be some type of of strife or, or rub between the leaders and the church members. And of course, when you think about that, that's really clear. That, that does not catch us by surprise because, man, in our fallen human nature, we don't like authority. 
We don't like someone to stand up week to week and tell us what to do and how to live our lives. Paul makes very clear in verse, um, verse 12 that these men have charge over the people of the church. Again, we don't like that type of authority. And so Paul is writing to say, friends, church, dear saints, you must not let that cause issue among you. But with that in mind, let's firstly remember what is the description of an elder or a church leader. We looked at this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, how, do, how does Paul there describe himself and therefore those who are, are set apart by the Lord to lead his church? He says, we are slaves of Christ and we are stewards or house managers of the church of God and the word of God. So the first thing that we must get if we want to get these relationships right is that those who lead the church are merely slaves and stewards and servants of Christ. And Paul fleshes those ideas out as we go through these verses. So let's consider then what Paul says. He says, I request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and who give you instruction. Now, lest you think this is a time to pat church leaders on the back, surely I tell you it is not. This is a time where we see that it is only those who are faithful to the calling of the Lord who are, who are called to be respected or honored or highly esteemed. Paul's original request here, he says, I ask that you appreciate these men. That's an interesting term there, to appreciate. It's the Greek word that is often translated know. I ask you to know these men, to, to discern without a declared fact of who they are and what they do. Essentially, Paul says, look around and see and perceive who it is that is faithfully laboring among you as an under-shepherd to Christ. We could say this another way. There are those who tell you how diligently they labor for the sake of Christ. And there's those whose lives evidence it. And it's the second category of whom Paul speaks. It's that second category, those whose, whose lives evidence their service to the Lord that Paul says are to be highly esteemed. Now notice then there are three qualifiers to this. There are three qualifiers as to, as to what is required of a man to be found faithful in the service and leadership of the church. They must diligently labor among the church. They must exercise authority over the church. And they must give instruction to the church. Again, in a nutshell, Paul is saying those leaders who are to be esteemed are those who are faithful servants and faithful under-shepherds to Christ within the church. He firstly says to appreciate those who diligently labor among you. All of those words are important. To diligently labor speaks of one who grows tired or weary in, in their service. Scripture often speaks of a physical labor when it uses this term. And so Paul's point is that the first qualifier of a shepherd who is worthy of honor is that he is a diligent serv servant, a diligent worker 
to the church. He willingly and joyfully gives his life to serve the church. Not just he's a hard worker, not just he does a good job in anything he does, but he diligently labors among you. He diligently labors within the church. It's a calling of men to serve God's people. Next then, Paul speaks of, and we're going to run through these because I really want to get to verse 14 and 15. So we're going to run through these fairly quickly and then get to, to the meat of what we want to look at. And then Paul says that these men also have charge over you in the Lord. There's three descriptors. If you were to pull out a Greek dictionary, there are three descriptors uh, of this Greek term here, have charge over you in the Lord. These men preside over the church. These men are protectors of the church. And thirdly, they care for the church. When Paul says they have charge over you, he has all those descriptions in mind. They preside over the church. They protect the church from attacks from without or within, and they, and they care for the church. They labor in, in the care and protection and nourishment of the church. Again, in our day, leadership and authority are grossly misdefined. Some people overdefine the good qualities of leadership. Some people undercut the necessity for leadership. And some people just say, I don't even know what leadership is. I don't want to have anything to do with it. The Lord's word is clear that those in leadership of the church have a very narrowly defined task. They protect, they lead, they guard, and they give specific attention to the care and instruction of the people that the Lord entrusts to them. And some see authority as an ultimate goal. You think about the workplace. So many want to climb the ladder to, to be leaders, managers, bosses, CEOs, whatever of a company, because they want authority. Authority is their ultimate goal. They want authority and power and wealth. So some see it as the ultimate goal, and some see it as the ultimate evil. Authority is often abused and misused or, or even neglected, and some people see authority as a very evil thing, but the Lord gives clear instruction as to the authority and the authority structure of the church. The third defining trait of an honorable leader is that they instruct the people of the church according to God's word. Talked about this this morning in Bible study. This is the Greek term nutheteo, instructions, where we get the, the idea of nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. It's a Greek term that speaks to making clear things that are wrong and warning against those wrong things. If, if something is wrong and sinful, the, the role of the church leader, and as we'll see in a few minutes, the role of every church member is to warn the people that it is wrong. Say, this is sinful, you need to avoid such a thing. So those who minister God's word are to do exactly that. They must show how something is wrong and how something is sinful. They must warn against it and instruct the people in the way that they should go. So that is the qualifiers of, of a church leader who is to be honored. Paul says then, he says, I ask you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Here again, we can be very specific about those who are worthy to be 
esteemed highly. You esteem them highly in love, with love, through love, because of their work, because they diligently and faithfully do what the Lord has called them to do. This Greek term work is the word ergon. It speaks to one who performs services or duties which he has clearly been called to do. So when Paul says because of their work, he clearly is making, he's making clear that he's not saying that you blindly honor and esteem someone because they have an office or position. You esteem and honor someone because they faithfully carry out those duties. So to the church, regarding its leaders, Paul says, if they serve faithfully and diligently, honor them, esteem them, love them, know and identify them. So what's one clear way that we can do this? It's right here in the text at the end of verse 13. Live in peace with one another. That is one great way to, to honor those who labor among us here at Grace Covenant and to honor and show preference to one another, to seek to live in peace with one another. Calvin said that Paul had in view here to oppose the plots of Satan. He said that Satan does not cease to use every endeavor to stir up either quarrels or disagreements or enmities or strife between the people of the church and, and even between the people and their leadership. So for the people to rightly honor the leaders and for the leaders to rightly serve and care for the people, there's this one idea that's at the center of all that, peacefulness. It's to strive to live peaceful while we strive after Christ together. This is not peace at all costs most assuredly, because true peace and true unity only comes when the truth is declared and taken hold of and lived according to, lived by. We, we must strive to peaceably receive the ministry of others. That means that we don't buck up and, and, and get our backs up when someone comes to us with, with an issue that they would like to address. And that goes every way between every person in the church. This, this last phrase almost kind of looks backwards to the, to the people and the church leaders and then forward to what we'll look at in verse 14. To live at peace with one another is a calling to every single one of us. So how do we apply this practically, okay? We, we say that we must live at peace with one another. Well, there, well there's a couple cross-references, kind of a, a double cross-reference, if you will, that will be helpful, I think. In Mark 9, 50, Mark chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus said there that salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? It's a lot of saltiness. Jesus said, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So you say, okay, what does that mean? Cross that over to Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. The Apostle Paul, he says, Let your speech always be with grace. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So this is how we pursue peacefulness. We let our speech and our interactions with one another be rightly seasoned with a gracious and patient and loving spirit. This is the key to biblically healthy and peaceful relationships. 
It's not that we don't address issues. It's not that we just wink at sin or sweep sin under the rug, but it's that we always come to one another with grace, with patience, and with love. So again, that's kind of the overview of looking at the relationship between the leaders and the church and bleeding into all of our relationships together. And secondly, I want to move forward then and look at verse 14, consider the idea of sheep relating to sheep. And we'll slow down here a little bit to consider all that Paul says here. Verse 14 says, We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Now with this, Paul is laying forth very, very, very specific instructions as to how we should relate to one another. But with these instructions, I want to give you a couple, couple notes before we dive in that I believe are, are very important, as, especially as we consider the rest of Scripture on this topic of relationships. We'll be talking about how we confront sin in one another. That's what Paul has in mind. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak, and be patient with everyone. We're talking about confronting sin. We're talking about confronting issues and the relational aspect of how we must do that. So as we're talking about that, Paul essentially tells us how to categorize our fellow believers so that our interactions with them and our, and our speech to them will be gracious and will be edifying to the hearer. And so before we get into that, one thing is very clear that, that as Christians, especially as church members who, as we should be striving to, to fellowship more and more and more closely with one another, as, as fellow members of a church, we must understand, friends, that we cannot be sin hunters. If you want to be a sin hunter, you will find sin in every single person in this room, every single person in this church. If you want to follow somebody around and point out every sin, whether in motive, in word, or in deed, you can have at it and you will spend and waste your life doing that. That's not what we're called to do. We do not always need to be hunting and pointing out sin in each other's lives. There would be no time for growing and fostering real relationships if we did that. Paul Washer has a great sermon on this text. It's a lot longer than I will preach today, but you're welcome to go listen to it. And on this topic, he said, if you're going to do these things, you need three things. If, if, if these relationships are going to be as they're supposed to be, there are three things that must undergird that. You must have love for one another, a real and a true love. You must have a merciful and compassionate spirit. And thirdly, he said, you need to have a big mirror. You need to rightly and regularly examine your life. Because the last thing we are called to do, the last thing we need to do, the last thing that is helpful is for me to go confront sin in somebody when I've got this big plank in my own eye, to go take the speck out of my brother's eye while I have a huge plank of sin in my own eye. So you need love, you need mercy, and you need that big mirror. You need to regularly examine your heart, your motives, your words, and your deeds. And then you need to go out and practice these things that we're about to look at. 
Also, I think just to, to make clear, and this probably goes without saying, but as we kind of set forth these categories, the, the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak, again, I think this goes without saying, but don't think that it's our job to go out and say, okay, well, this person is weak, there's one that's unruly, here's one that's faint-hearted, this person, they're kind of all of them. They fit a, that's not our job, that's not our role. There, there's no need to, to walk around and, and point out, you know, Walk up, hey, you know, I was talking to this person. That person's unruly. There's no need for that. What we need to do is rightly discern a situation and a person as we deal with them. Because this is kind of an all-encompassing idea. Not, most people are not going to be unruly in every area. They might be unruly in one area, weak in another, and faint-hearted in another. So it does you no good to try to lump somebody into a box. That's not what Paul is saying to do here. So let's, let's look then. Let's look at these three categories and the proper relational response. So we're looking at the categories of what to address, and we also want to look at how to address them. Firstly, Paul begins, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly. The unruly is a Greek term that describes someone who is disorderly or out of rank. It is one who is insubordinate and does not keep in rank and in step with other soldiers. It was like a military term. So this, as we use it and bring it into the Christian life, it describes someone who deviates from the prescribed order and instruction of God's word. That is someone who is unruly, someone who's whose life is deviating away from the described clear path that we see in Scripture. And Paul's instruction of how we to deal with this type of person is that we admonish them. Again, it's the same word that Paul used back up in, in verse 12 about the, the shepherds and the sheep saying that they give you instruction. That's that same word, nutheteo. It speaks again of warning against the sinfulness and the, and the wrongness of an activity or an action to, to clearly point out the danger of such a thing. It is often, I think, a, a sharper proof. You know, Clark went through and kind of gave, gave us this idea, rightly so, of how we must be gentle, we must be, we must be loving, we must be patient, and all those things we must absolutely apply. And to add on to those things, we must also be very clear. We must also be very firm. We, we can't, those things are not in opposition to each other. To be, to be sharp and clear and firm and to be loving and gentle and patient. Those things go hand in hand when you confront sin. That's what this term even speaks to. It's a clear and a firm rebuke. So to be very clear, it's our duty to one another as fellow believers, as covenant members of a local church to, to address one another. If you see a brother or a sister who is walking in unruly, disorderly, out-of-step conduct, your duty to that person on the authority of Scripture is to admonish them to go to them with a clear rebuke, to go to them and clearly show them with God's word how what they're doing, how that activity or that action or that motive, you show them according to God's word how that is sinful, how it's dangerous. 
you warn them and you tell them they need to repent and to turn away from that thing. And also, just to be clear, because I think maybe there's confusion as to this in our day and age, Paul gives no grounds, he gives no instruction in this passage that such a firm admonishment is to to somehow circumvent the instruction that was given in Matthew 18. He doesn't say, well, if, if Billy over here is walking in an unruly manner, that you go and blast him in public, that you go admonish him in front of everybody. Paul doesn't say that. So what do we need to do? As, as Jesus himself laid forth for us, if a brother sins, if you see a brother sin, or if he sins against you, you go to him in private. You go even with a strong and a firm and a clear rebuke, but you do it in private. So we are to admonish the unruly. Next, Paul says that we are to encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those who are discouraged, or literally those who are small-souled. They are those, I think, within this context, those who are sorrowful of spirit, especially in regard to their sin. You know, we could probably broaden this out a little bit to say that, you know, someone who's weighed down with the, with the sorrows and the anxieties of life, that, that they need to be encouraged in this way. That would not be wrong, but I don't think that's Paul's point here. Paul, Paul's most pointed purpose here is in regards to sin and the life of the Christian. So he says that the believer who is discouraged and faint-hearted because of that raging battle with sin, that we are to respond to that person with encouragement, with consolation. Matthew Henry wrote about this. He said that such people should be encouraged. We should not despise them, but comfort them. And who knows what good a kind and comfortable word may do for them. You know, a stern warning, a stern word, a stern admonishment can always be needed. But when one is broken over their sins, you think of Psalm 51, David, who is absolutely shattered over his sin. Sometimes the most important thing to do as a brother or sister in Christ to somebody who is experiencing that level of brokenness is not to come beat them over the head with their sin again, but to come and remind them of the victory of the cross. Remind them that in Christ they can be forgiven. Christ declared on the cross, it is finished. I have borne your sins in my body on the tree so that you can die to those sins and live to righteousness. That is an encouragement, but it is also a little bit of an admonition, right? You, you don't want to just build somebody up constantly and, and not let the Lord do all the work he needs to break them over their sin, so you remind them, yes, it is finished, it is done, it is complete at the cross, but it was done at the cross so that you die to that sin. Not so that you would remain in it so God's grace would abound, but so that you can turn from sin and run to Christ and live for Christ. So it's important not only to, to admonish, but also to encourage but it's important to understand that we must mourn and be broken over our sin. Again, sticking with this theme of King David and his sin with Bathsheba. 
Think, think about 2 Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan comes to David on behalf of the Lord. He rebukes him very strongly. He lays forth David's sin. David is, is kind of enraged at the story that, that Nathan lays forth. And he says, well, David, you are the man. And David's crushed. He, he's broken, but he gets a strong admonishment in there until he's broken. But then when David's sinfulness is before him in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, Nathan brings a timely encouragement. He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So when you see a brother or sister who's reached that point of brokenness, don't go kick them while they're down. We need to make sure that they are, are brought low by the Lord, but then when they are there, build them back up encourage them. Tell them, dear friend, in Christ there is hope, there is life, and there is forgiveness. So we're to admonish the unruly. We are to encourage the faint-hearted. Then next, Paul says that we are to help the weak, to help those who are, who are without spiritual strength, to be devoted to those who lack or are without spiritual strength. Paul said in Romans 15, verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Those who are strong ought to not bear with the weaknesses of the weak, but to bear the weaknesses of the weak, to come alongside them, to be devoted to them. So you who are mature, you must help, you must come alongside of, and you must be devoted to those who are weaker or newer or less mature in the faith. You do not come and flaunt your maturity. Obviously, that would be sinful and an immature thing to do. But rather, you come and lovingly strengthen the immaturity of that brother or sister. You devote yourself to build them up, to bring them along with you. Again, the title of this is Pursuing Christ Together. So you go grab that weaker believer and you carry them along and you pursue Christ together. And I can assure you that as you do that, you will not always be carrying and shouldering that load. When you have someone alongside of you that you walk with, that you go to war with in this spiritual battlefield, you will not only be encouraging them. There will be times that they are encouraging and building up you as well. There will be times that they rebuke your sin. So admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help and be devoted to the weak. Calvin offers a summary to this by saying that Paul commands that the unruly should be admonished sharply in order that, they should be admonished sharply so that the weak can be treated with kindness and humanity and that the faint-hearted may receive consolation. Do you see that? Do you see how these all come together? That we admonish the unruly because if we're not ever going to admonish someone who's unruly, then how can we rightly encourage those who are faint-hearted or be devoted to the weak? If we're never going to admonish an unruly spirit, then everything we do is to no point, to no great end, because we're all going to stay faint-hearted. We're all going to stay weak. So we admonish those who are unruly so that we also have opportunity to build up the discouraged and the weak. We must properly and individually care for every fellow believer. 
We must be stern when sternness is needed, and we must be encouraging when encouragement is needed. I'd add here, it's not fair, nor is it biblical to ignore the person who needs to be admonished just because you know somebody else will come in and admonish them. If you see your brother in sin, Jesus doesn't say, wait and see if somebody else sees him in sin and then you go admonish him. He says, if your brother sins, you go to that brother in private. Show him his sin and correct him. And if he repents, you've won your brother, right? That, that's a, that is a good thing. So it's not right. It's not fair. It's not biblical to say, oh, well, I know, um, I know the elders will go to this person or I know that person is, is this guy's Sunday school teacher, so he's going to address that. If you see a brother in sin or a sister in sin, you know, with, with the right precautions in place, don't want to say that if you're a man, you go privately meet with a woman, of course, but if you see a brother or sister in sin, you go and address that sin. You are called to do that, not anyone else. When you see it, you are called to go. So Calvin gave that summary. Paul really gives his own summary to what he said here at the end of verse 14 when he says to be patient with everyone. So while the unruly are to be strongly admonished, the weak need encouragement, the faint-hearted need to be, to be encouraged and built up, what is required for all these people is a spirit of patience, a spirit of long-suffering, a spirit of endurance. We talked about patience a little bit last Sunday night in our prayer time. Patience speaks to bearing the offenses and the injuries of another in a spirit uh, that is slow to avenge, a spirit that is slow to anger and slow to punish. We are to bear offenses of other people. Period. End of statement. Bear the offenses of another. Bear the injuries that they do to you in patience and in love, but with this spirit that you will admonish the unruly, that you will encourage the faint-hearted, and that you will help the weak. But you will be patient with them regardless of where they fall within that spectrum. We must hold forth the high and the holy standard of, of God's word, God's standard that we are to be holy as he is holy. We must hold that forth to other people, to one another, to our fellow saints. But we must do that while knowing and understanding that the Lord brings progressive sanctification differently in each one of our lives. Simply stated, people will not typically grow in, in the amount of time that you deem to be right. You, know, you may think that this person is slow to be sanctified, or you may think, man, this, this person is being sanctified a little bit too quick. He's kind of He's kind of growing and, and he's kind of making me a little bit uncomfortable because I thought I was discipling him and now he's discipling me. People are going to grow in whatever way the Lord chooses to grow that brother or sister. So relationships ultimately require patience. Relationships that are walked in in this patience require wisdom and consistency. Be able to be biblically patient. You must be wise because you must know the proper way to address everything, and you must be consistent. Those of you with children know this so clearly that when you set a rule for your child, if you change that rule next time, guess what? Your admonishment last time is no good. Your admonishment this time is no good because they have no idea what the rule is because you said it's this one day and you said it's that tomorrow. So we must be consistent. 
we must be patient, we must be consistent, we must be wise. So that is how we are called to relate to one another. Now, I want to briefly run through verse 15 as a third point and consider the goal of Christian relationships. The goal of relationships, and as you know from the title, the goal of our relationships with one another is that we pursue Christ together, that we are made more like Christ together. Paul concludes this little section saying that, See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This must be the undergirding truth behind every relationship that we have, that you don't repay evil for evil. You will be sinned against by someone in this room. Probably will happen fairly regularly, unintentionally, and Lord willing, with repentance. But if we're going to walk in fellowship together, we are going to sin against one another. We battle with sin. Now, we should be being sanctified, being made more mature, but we are inevitably going to sin against one another. And so we must understand that we must not return evil for evil or offense for offense, but we must seek after that which is good for one another. We must bear with one another in patience and rightly confront one another's sins. So what is this good then that we are to seek for one another? We say we must seek the good for one another. Well, what, what is that good? Romans 12, 9, Paul says that we are to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So that which is good is the opposite of that which is evil, very clearly, right? So, so what is good as believers is that we hate and abhor those things that God hates. We hate that which is evil, that which is sinful, that which is perverse, that which is unbiblical. It is good that we hate sin and good that we labor against our flesh. So if you want to seek to do good to a brother or sister, seek to encourage them to do what is right, to fight against sin. The word seek here is, is the seek after is the word where, where we often see translated as persecute in the negative sense. But in the positive sense, it means to pursue and to pursue intently. And so that must be our goal in our relationships is to intently, to purposefully seek after that which is good, that which builds up, that which makes your brother or your sister more like Christ. Our great duty is to, is to seek the good in Christ of your fellow saint, and not only to seek their good, but to seek the glory of God in their good. If you want to know what is good for a brother or sister, it's whatever glorifies the Lord. It's never good for a, for a saint to sin. It's never good for them to do something that goes against God's word. So if you have a question about what is good, ask yourself what in this person's life will glorify God. Seek their good by seeking to help them glorify God. And obviously, dear friends, this cannot happen if we are not in Christ. If you are to glorify the Lord, you must be in Christ. If your relationships are to be healthy, to be biblical, to bring fruit, to draw you nearer to Christ, you must first be in Christ. 
To be in Christ, you must repent of your sins. You must believe that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave on the third day, and that the Father has brought him back into heaven. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. He did that on your behalf so that you could be credited with his righteousness. All that is required for that is that you believe, that you exercise faith which is given to you from the Lord. And when you are in Christ, his spirit is within you. When his spirit is within you, you will strive alongside of your brothers and sisters to grow together in Christ's likeness. That is what is required of us to pursue Christ together. We must be devoted to one another. We must seek to, to honor the Lord in how we relate to one another. And we must ultimately seek to ensure that our brothers and sisters are glorifying the Lord. And all the while, while we do that, again, as we said earlier, you must ensure that you yourself are honoring the Lord. You must examine your own life, examine your heart, examine your motives, examine your deeds. And then when you are walking in the Lord, you go find someone, pull them alongside of you, and you pursue Christ together. It doesn't have to be that you all have a, a mutual interest. Maybe you like football and I like music or you're a, a, a technology person and I love the outdoors. That's all fine. You, you can find someone who has completely different set of interests than you and you can still pursue Christ together. And that is our calling as a local church. We are to, to join together to seek to serve and honor Christ in our lives and to go out and make Christ known. You want to know one thing that gets a lot easier if you have a buddy to bring alongside of you, it's evangelism, right? Personal evangelism. You know, when, we're, when we're out at the park or something, imagine how much more challenging it would be for you if you're standing up there alone. But how grateful are you to have a brother or sister there to, to encourage you, to help give you a little bit of extra boldness. So if we want to make Christ known, let's walk together. Let's do that together. Let's do everything together. Let's give our lives to to serve and honor Christ, and let's do that together for, for the sake of the glory of God above all things. And he will be honored in this. The power of the gospel will be displayed as we strive for these types of relationships. And not only will the, will the power of the gospel be displayed, but the glory of God will be manifest here among his people. Let's close with a word of prayer.